0: This is John DeFalb from John Sando's Bookshop in London. Today I have with me the writer Laura Beatty. Her last book, Lost Property, was a great favourite of mine on its publication in 2019. Presented as a novel, it recounts the journey of a woman and her partner who, disgusted by Brexit, pack up their campervan and drive off into Europe. Clever, witty, a little whimsical, it impressed me above all with its lively sense of inquiry engagement with the world historically in the present and in future. Laura's new book is Looking for Theophrastus. Ostensibly quite different from her last, it's about a classical philosopher who once was well-known but now is rather lost to us. However its subtitle, Travels in Search of a Lost Philosopher, suggests that the author's own inquiry will be similarly central to this book. And there is a continuing preoccupation with borders. Laura, first of all, welcome.
1: Thank you, Johnny. Very nice to be here.
0: And tell us who was Theophrastus?
1: He was Aristotle's great friend and pupil. He was about 13 years younger than Aristotle from Lesbos. Arrived in Athens aged 18 to study under Plato at the Academy. Um, And he and Theophrastus, he and Aristotle, sorry, had a a different angle from Plato, and set off together to pursue that. And
0: uh, how is that recorded in the first place? How do we know about him?
1: Um, how do we know about him? Well, there's a brilliant um, document which is the Lives of Philosophers by somebody called Diogenes Laertius, which is a long time after written, a long time after, but um, records each of the philosophers broadly what they thought. It's sort of like uh, an Aubrey's Brief Lives, um, and it gives uh, a catalogue of what they wrote, and if he has it, their will. So you get this uh-huh. lovely slant, just tiny view into uh, what's important. But so
0: there's a chain of oral memory until you get to Diogene's: Uh, uh
1: There's a chain of oral memory, exactly, and there were the works. So many of the works at that point were probably still extant. Um, and okay. there was a big, um, because in the wake they both taught Alexander the Great, uh, and in the wake of Alexander the Great's push into Persia, Aristotelian centers were sort of being set up across that world. So there's a wonderful account of a, a place at Aikanum um, where Pupils of Aristotle and Theophrastus took their works in order to disseminate. And where is that now? So that's Afghanistan. And Um,
0: so, for some, roughly how long, Uh, some hundreds of
1: years, were were the works extant? Uh, Well, um, this is a knotty problem because we don't really know what happened to, inverted commas, Aristotle's library. The first problem is that Aristotle doesn't record having a library. Um, he's called the reader by Plato, um, but he makes no mention of books in his will. The person who mentions the library is Theophrastus, and he leaves it to his one of his pupils who I think he hoped was going to take over the Lyceum, and in fact didn't. Um, and this man came from uh, Skepsis on the coast of H. Minor, and he took the library, whatever it was, Presumably, all of Theophrastus's work and all of Aristotle's work over there, where it, some of it lay in a cellar, some of it was sold to the library in Alexandria, and the Library of Alexandria, as we know, burnt in 48 BC. So, so subsequent to that, to that, there were bits and pieces in Arab libraries. There were bits and pieces in Arab libraries, and the <sighs> I am absolutely, I want to say right now, I'm a Wikipedia magpie, not a scholar. So. <laughs> um, uh, what I've grasped is is not um, sort of cast iron. Um, there's a lot of opinion about this and one of the feelings is that because from an early point Theophrastus kind of separated himself from Aristotle's thought, he, he was an independent thinker and there were distinct differences between the two of them and it has been suggested that the Aristotle school, for instance, in Baghdad, didn't bother so much with Theophrastus' work because he was taking a slightly different slant. They were basing their thought on Aristotle. So Aristotle's um, notes were were copied and treasured. Interestingly, his formal works haven't survived. So when you think of Aristotle and his enormous output, in fact, we have one-fifth of what he wrote. Mm. One-fifth has survived. And none of the formal works. So it's... It's problematic.
0: Um. The the information about the that you've given us, or the the brief background you've given us, there comes out in at various points in the book, and is important to the background or to the reading of the book. But it's it would be a mistake to give anybody the idea that that is what the book is really as an, an account of the work of the- Theophrastus the, the account of the work of Theophrastus is embedded in it but will you tell us what gave you what what drove you to want to write about him what what is it about Theophrastus mm. that interested you in the first place
1: it's it's an interesting thing i've been thinking about this book for about 10 years and the thing that caught me originally was the characters. He wrote this sequence that, of character a, a sketches. It's book, as it yeah. were, called The Characters. It's, it's called, um, uh, yes, it's called The Characters. And I fa- came across that. And it's it's quite simply, everyone agrees, it's not like anything else in the classical canon. It's not the sort of impossible grandeur of perfect Athens. It's ordinary people doing very ordinary things. In a very day-to-day way, and it's the only document for me that gives you the feeling of just that strange telescoping of time when you see what it was like actually to be in the streets of Athens in, you know, um, the third century. You mentioned this
0: start, you, um, and it it recurs again later on. A character called the Chatterbox. Um, I'd love just to read, or if you want to read it um, i read it <laughs> um, it's six lines or so it says the, just the chatterbox okay. which is what what you drew you into
1: so here's the chatterbox he's the kind of man who sits next to a stranger he's never met before and first launches into singing his own wife's praises then recounts the dream he had last night, then describes in every detail what he had for dinner then as no one has managed to stop him he carries right on saying things like People nowadays are far less well behaved than in the olden days. The city's crammed with foreigners. A little more rain would be good for the crops. I think he then also says, "I was sick last night." <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a great person. But
0: it, it sounds uh, so contemporary. It's so um, contemporary. And uh, as you, so, you sort of fizzed with excitement when you fizzed with the excitement when you read that and thought.
1: I thought, um. this is this is the, the strangest and most fascinating thing I've read for two reasons. One, I didn't know what ancient Greece was like, and I've been interested in it for a very long time, and I've sort of been in love with it for a very long time, and I've never seen it so close and in its ordinary dress. So that was the first thing. The second thing was this feeling that it just reminded me so much of novels and it's a way of looking at the world that I didn't think was invented until very much later. First, the first sort of hunch I had was the nearest thing in time to that I can get to is Chaucer and then after that it's the realist novel in the 19th century. And then the third thing that grabbed me was this long-standing obsession I've had with time which to me is something I can feel and I find it fascinating when something as far back as classical Athens I mean we're talking millennia suddenly is right there you know? this is
0: extremely interesting because as soon as you m- mention being interested in time, it makes me think back to lost property your your novel lost property, where you that time is elided you in the back of your campervan, you suddenly have. Is it Christine de Pizan comes and, to Joan, have a, of a, and Joan Of course, you have r- <laughs> really fascinating yaks with the two of them in the back of your campervan, and uh, um, the it's the time as a border is suddenly becomes permeable. In the same way, in this book, you you you're addressing Theophrastus regularly. Mm-hmm. You you're, you're really good friends with Theophrastus. In well,
1: this book. I I hope to be. I hope <laughs> to be. Um, I think Lost Property was the first time I thought that instead of going back in time, what would happen if you brought the person forward? Um, Partly because sometimes that border seems to me to be so thin, so permeable, you, you you can see straight into it. I had this experience writing Darkling, my second novel, which was sort of based on actual documents, actual 17th century letters from this woman who was holding her castle against the cavaliers and i would spend you know mornings in the british library reading these interminable and impossible letters wading through you know scratchy handwriting and it would say you know in the height of the drama i pray mrs stiggins as well i pray mrs Diggins's children are all well i pray little billy is eating his medicine i pray So and so is in good health. Please give my respects to and I you know, you'd you'd spend all morning deciphering this letter and you'd have nothing. Mm. And I realized that time was moving more slowly for them and the letter was for a different purpose. You Mm. know, it took an enormous amount of time for that letter to get from London to Herefordshire. An enormous amount of time. By the time it arrived, the person might be dead. So Mm. it was sort of a paper prayer Mm. rather than an instant communication. Mm. And I for the first time had this feeling of time stretching so that it's unimaginably different and impenetrable and you can't see the life that you're trying to look at. And then suddenly, because someone says something entirely understandable and recognisable, like a child saying to her brother, I dare not tell my mother I've lost my hood, please mm. buy me a new one, the whole thing is collapsed. Mm. And it's as if there's no time between you and them. So I started wondering, what is this strange and fluid thing which we regard as absolutely set in stone you cannot cheat time it just marches forward you can't go back I just began to realize well you can you go back all the time in your mind you know
0: you 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 set up this fluidity very early on in this book talking about Greek myth in particular in relation to Orpheus um, which is a I, I think this is why you bring Orpheus in really uh, otherwise on the face of
1: it one thinks why are we suddenly <laughs> <the office?"> So, <laughs> no, Of course he's p- completely irrelevant but uh, he, he does that job very nicely um, for two reasons. One because he's a musician and music uses time uh, to make itself and in doing so it can throw you straight back into the time you first heard that song you feel like you're 18 again, the whole thing is present. It's one of those sort of Proustian uh, portals, and Orpheus, of course, went back to get his dead wife and bring her into the present, so I thought he 'd be a handy um
0: it it comes across that as that, and you say i 've trotted down here in music and in story, we are sidestepping time that is what reading is, so suddenly again you 're moving you 're introducing music as a way of sidestepping time, and then you 're associating reading with music, and by extension that is, well you're explicit about it, that is how we read novels, that that, that they are in a way cheating, mm. you don't use the word cheating, but sidestepping time.
1: Uh, cheating is just as good, I think time is, is to be cheated at all possible turns. Um, and there is something wonderful about reading particularly long form stuff because you live it alongside your life, you know. you You live... Anna Karenina's life alongside yeah. your own. So you're living in this double time frame almost.
0: You also introduce yourself as a child quite early on, again in relation to Greek myth almost, but um, the... Y- you invoke the a shift in the perception of time that happens towards the end of childhood.
1: Um, Yes, I think what I wanted to say about that was children don't really live in time they they don't have a grasp on it. you know an afternoon can seem interminable. Inter- I remember saying to my eldest son when he was very small, "I'll be quick going to the shop, and he groaned and said, "Quick is long <laughs> <laughs> And it's right when you're when you're waiting as a child, quick is very, very long mm. if mm. if what you want to do is something else, somewhere else. So children have a different perception of time. But you, you,
0: you, you refer to a moment your, in your own child or adolescence when you suddenly, or perhaps it's more general than that, when you suddenly think, okay, a child looks back
1: yeah, I think I—I I, that was something that I did notice, uh, partly because we'd relocated, we moved house, and so everything was different, and I realized that something was lost, a state mm-hmm. was lost, you know, my body was changing, uh, you're being hurled into a future that you're not mm-hmm. ready for, and I do remember my children saying, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, mm-hmm. you know. It's the first time you're aware that you're being pulled through your life relentlessly, and. It's the first time I felt loss. I felt hmm. something was gone that, that I wanted to do that also, that,
0: that, that yeah. account runs in parallel with Orpheus looking back. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's characteristic of y- the way in which you you juggle things. And at the same time, you're just giving us an account of how you l- view Greek myth as a slippage of forms. I do, yeah.
1: So t- about um, that. well uh, you rightly point out I'm interested in boundaries I'm interested in where I'm not allowed to go um, and I'm not allowed to go back in time and I'm not allowed to go into the life of a tree um, and that seems to me to be what stories and imagination are for that you you can cross that boundary, you can, you can slip and I think particularly in this case it was made real for me, that's something I've always been interested in um, imagining myself into something else. And for the first time, looking at Aristotle and Theophrastus about their work of cataloguing the world, which simply means identifying that this is a daisy and this is an oak tree, and they are and always will be different and separate. The mythic world allows that a girl can become an oak tree. Hmm. So there you isn't refer that. to the
0: equating of a human with a non-human.
1: Yes, I think so. And I think, it to me, watching those men pull everything up by the roots and separate everything out and say this is this and this is this and this is this and never the twain shall mm. um change or combine again you're looking at a world that is going to be different from then on afterwards and of course now we're beginning to understand that things aren't quite so simple and you know there is this um mycelium mat which mm, penetrates right inside the trees um, root mm. cells, so that it's impossible for us to know <laughs> where the tree stops and the mm. um, mycelium might start. But it, in the context of Theophrastus, you, you, you,
0: and ancient Greece, you describe this really rather extraordinary moment of, which I didn't was completely unaware of, this sort of s- sense of the beginning of n- natural history in this sort of modern sense of. Taxonomy, and you say that Linnaeus actually used Theophrastus's original classification. He did.
1: He did. Um, I mean, both Aristotle and Theophrastus wrote on plants, but Theophrastus's work survived. He was also a gardener, um, and they were doing something which was brand new. People had, ne- you know, nobody had done this before. I mm. mean, it, it, it's it's a really Life-changing, world-changing moment when they decide to stop and and look at everything, you know, and try to understand the nature of the physical world. Um, and that's that's really thrilling to me. And it happened on the island of Lesbos, and it took sort of three years or so.
0: You you say of uh, Theophrastus he's the man who started it all, who taught us first how to do it, how to use our eyes, and this sense of him being a man who used his eyes whether it's in relation to plants or in relation to characters is very very vivid in the book, is absolutely delicious this, in, in the sense of you delighting in this man who, who observed, the, 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 his powers of observation. Um, there, there are so many aspects to the, to the book, the, the history Um, a change in epistemology and and observation. Um, There's also you travelling. Did you enjoy (laughs) travelling in pursuit of him? I've
1: always enjoyed travelling in Greece. Um, I loved it, yes. Uh, And I wanted very much to remember that he was a man, a live man in the world. And you can get lost in manuscripts and books thinking only about the world of ideas. And he was interested in the physical world. So I wanted to walk where he'd walked. I wanted to go where he'd been and look at what he might have seen. Um, It seems, on the
0: face of it, such a bizarre enterprise to try and see the world as a a philosopher from uh, 400 BC. It's a
1: well-nigh impossible thing to do because, of course, we we understand you know now from childhood that the world is you know we can see inside ourselves we know what our bodies look like inside we know mm. that we're made of cells we know about the atom we know that there are smaller things than the atom we know mm. about deep space you know we know an enormous amount the world looks totally different to us from the way it looked to him so in order to understand him and understand who he was and what he was doing I needed to imagine the world that he saw. Um.
0: Which takes you amongst car ferries and um, <laughs> uh, cheap marketplaces yeah. and so forth. But it also means that you're looking at the stones that are under your foot and you go to museums. And there's a particular moment in the museum in Lesvos. I think it is. Mm, I think it probably well, is. So you see an acrobat. Tell oh, that.
1: that is such a beautiful thing. Um, it's a little terracotta uh, of an acrobat. Um, I th- in my memory she's female, um, but that could be wrong. It was a long time ago. And she's just flinging herself in this uh, eternal arc. Um,
0: but on the one hand What seems to animate you at that moment is the thought that Theophrastus himself could have seen it.
1: I think I was spending a lot of time trying to, yes, find the world that he would have seen. So I was looking at uh, things that were contemporary with him, and that was on the island where he lived, and at a squeeze he could have seen it in the marketplace.
0: also the fact that it was an acrobat? I mean, not not Um, just that he was an (laughs) actor, but mentally. I
1: didn't make that connection, Johnny. But yes, perhaps it was uh, subconsciously. (laughs) I
0: mean, he does sound like an intellectual (laughs) acrobat. (laughs) He certainly
1: was. He certainly was. Um,
0: At a certain point, you go into telling us more about the works as they are known, and as they became known in England which is rather fascinating. Will you trot over that?
1: Okay, so I think with somebody like Theophrastus, who is an extremely long time ago, um, and for whom there's very little left surviving, you're, you have to pick up clues. So in a way, the way I wrote the book and the way I thought about him were dictated to a certain extent by the fact that there, wasn't, there just wasn't a lot of material. And so things like his will and the list of his works I looked at again and again because they were the only way I could get a flavor of what sort of mind it was, what sort of person it is who does this. I was quite consciously using his technique. All his character sketches start with such a man as Hmm. does such and such, the type of man who would do such and such. So I was trying to think what type of man writes these kinds of things, what type of man leaves his possessions in this way. Um, and of course his, the list of his works is just the most irresistible thing. Uh, if you um, weren't in y- love with him already you would be in love with him after w- the list There of is works. the most wonderful
0: <laughs> list. Will you? Um, I'll give it a read. Give it, Yes. Uh, wait, wait. I think it's... Yep. There.
1: Great. So it's important to say for his sake that he also wrote enormous quantities of um, uh, literature about all the conventional philosophical things, so syllogisms, prior analytics, posterior analytics, methodics, problems, logical divisions, all the rest of it. But then he also wrote, he found time to write these other things. So, here we go. He wrote on strange and varied subjects, including salt, nitre, and alum, putrefaction, indivisible lines, the virtues, kingly power, juices, complexions and flesh. I like that one. Crimes, forensic speeches, tumult or riot, old age, a description of the world, and images and phantoms. He wrote on love, Uh, he wrote on pleasure and on happiness, he wrote on epilepsy, on enthusiasm, on sudden appearances, on the different voices of similar animals, on animals that exhibit jealousy, animals reputed to be spiteful, animals produced spontaneously. He liked animals very much and he never ate them. He wrote seven general books on animals, as well as books on land animals, animals that live in holes, and animals that change colour. He wrote on hot and cold, giddiness and vertigo, sudden dimness of sight. He wrote on sweating, on working, on illness, on fainting fits, on melancholy, on solecisms. He wrote on honey, on drunkenness, on the sea, on suffocation, on punishment, on mental derangement, acting, music, and hair. He wrote on tyranny, water, sleep, and dreams. And so it goes. It's an absolutely delicious list. (laughs) Um, It makes me wonder if you've found any connection with Montaigne. Do you know, I looked and looked in Montaigne to see whether I could find any reference to him, and I couldn't. I may not have looked hard enough, but I couldn't. But uh, they they are, I had exactly that thought. They're kindred spirits. Yeah. They really are. Um,
0: And him coming into... English uh, you mention um, well you m- but before coming into English actually that his used or misused by the early christians that's interesting
1: yes uh, well he 's used and misused by the schools of rhetoric, and he's pasted in the backs of the manuals on how to how to speak perfectly in public, yes. and that of course is taken up by the Christians who are needing to preach. Um, and so his uh what I would say very neutral, very observant sort of scientific character scu- studies, which are they're funny, they're entertaining, I think they were designed to entertain, are twisted by the early Christians and made moral hmm. with these rather pious little um introductions and it's it's reductive and it it spoils his sort of exuberance, I think but
0: but it's then suddenly we're with George Eliot.
1: <laughs> How did we get there? Oh, God knows. Uh, she was so uh, bedded in the classics. She, she read uh, ancient Greek and Latin, and she knew Theophrastus. She knew his characters. And um, her last published work, in fact, it was, it was published after her death, Oh no, it wasn't, it was published published before her death, but but just at the very end of her life, uh, was her version of the characters, which is Mm. um, Theophrastus such.
0: But we've gone via
1: Chaucer. We've gone via Chaucer, because of course, uh, our best known and best loved uh, Chaucerian character, the wife of Bath, is the invention of Theophrastus, uh, which was my most pleasurable discovery. So my hunch was right that there was something there that, that certainly Chaucer responded to and via Chaucer I think the novel grows out of, which is this little fragment preserved in a letter from St. Jerome to Jovinianus about the evils of marriage. Um, and I'm mildly cross with Theophrastus for uh, giving women a slightly bad rap in this, but I think the rap was enhanced by Jerome, who definitely didn't like women at all. Anyway, it's an incredibly vivid portrait of an angry woman berating her husband for um, his misbehavior with the maid next door, uh, his inability to furnish her with nice enough clothes or the right pots and pans. And it's, it's Theophraston in its vividness and its clutter and hmm. its uh, ordinary life. And I think Chaucer must have read it in his tower room after his day's work. And I think it must have struck him just like it struck me. Mm. You know, this is an extraordinary thing. Here is a real woman, you know, in the cage of her man's expectations and requirements. It is,
0: as you put it, it is so vivid, both in the thing itself that you're telling us, but also your delight in it comes across so strongly and I think at that point I should say we we, we should stop and I should just encourage people to read the book and so thank you Laura Um, thank you very much and in wrapping up I should say that it is an extremely ambitious book this Laura sets up so many hairs that go jumping all over the place By exploring the shadowy figure of Theophrastus, she explores how we see things, how we relate to them, how we experience time. But it's extraordinarily successful in its ambition. Intimately felt and closely experienced, it reveals, although she says she's not a scholar, it does reveal great scholarship and a reaching imagination. It's a deeply beguiling book. It's available at 16.99, and Laura has signed some copies for us. So thank you, Laura Beattie, and do read this book. It's fantastic. Thank you, Johnny.
1: I hope nobody's disappointed after that. They won't be. They won't be. Thank you. <laughs>